Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Early Education Show. We're here with episode 64. I'm Liam. I'm Lisa. And I'm Leanne. And welcome back. We've been coming back from a short break. Did you two enjoy your, your two weeks off? Yes, thank you. Yes, yes I, I, I love what paid happened. holidays. <laughs> <laughs> Did we get holiday pay, Lisa? You used up all yours then. Uh, you had to take leave without pay. <laughs> oh, I was on leave without pay. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, all right. So we uh, the, the main topic for conversation uh, later in the episode is going to be um, RTOs and workforce planning, a new uh, uh, sort of um, what they're calling a, a stakeholder forecast. So a look at the sector and look at what, be, what might be around the corner in terms of planning for RTOs for the sector has been released. And we're going to sort of take a quick look at that and then wrap it into a broader discussion around workforce planning and I guess where the educator profession is kind of sitting at the moment. But we will go through, uh, we've obviously been away for a few weeks, we've got a few things to cover in news chat and we'll start with uh, the uh, new childcare package update. So with less than two months now until July 2, oh God, it's starting to get really terrifying. Uh, services and families are being asked to get a hell of a lot done to ensure they're ready. For services, you must ensure your key personnel have a PRODA account. That's basically a government data account and not some sort of mad robot from the future. And that the person with management of control has logged on to transfer your service or services across to the new system. Uh, families, crucially, must also now log on to MyGov to update your details. Now, I don't know about you two, obviously not working directly with centres, but uh, this has all felt like it's, it seems like we're sort of right in the middle of the wave of getting all this stuff done. But it's, there's a lot of stuff coming over the horizon at the moment. Is it taking a long time to do all the the sort of underlying, you know, foundational stuff to set this up? Well, I will say, because I've had to come at it from both directions, because I'm not only uh, working with a service provider, I'm a parent of a service. So and I think I talked about this in our last episode, but I found the MyGov process uh, not impossible, but fairly uh, fairly annoying and, and vague. I will say that, so obviously the person with management control on Northside is our CEO, Bruce, and he did not have kind things to say about the process to to get on and transition your services. He had to have the Proder account, make sure you'd logged on correctly you then had to have a whole range of various bits of numbers for um for your service approval and then your provider approval and there was a whole it was not it was not a simple process well it wasn't complicated but it was long and tedious and you had to have a whole bunch of things to hand immediately and i, I will say our poor ceo uh, was uh, debating whether he still wanted to be an approved provider at the end of the, the process he was wondering how many how many uh, people how many organizations will drop out of the system as soon as they have to do this part of the process maybe that's it maybe that's the that maybe that's actually the goal maybe this is this is i think i did joke to our ceo that this this may be their response to over overcrowding in the sector is force them to go through this process and the ones that don't like it will just drop out what I'm worried about, Liam, is not so much the ones like you who um, know you have to do it and are annoyed by the process but, you know, buckle under and can do it at the moment, but the services out there that have got no idea that they have to do this. And, and there will be some. Got, yeah. And more than that is the families that haven't yet heard the message that they have to do this. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Um, yeah. 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 Um, 
And I think it'll be interesting to hear from services if this is something you have struggled with or if you're uh, hearing out there that it's a big challenge because I think we, we can't underestimate just the separate to the, well, you know, what I think we would all agree is poor policy and poor decision-making on behalf of children, just the the huge IT and resourcing required to get this over the line uh, just can't be can't be underestimated. And I think yep. this is the time when the um, the the professional support coordinator, past professional support coordinator, is missing in action. Yeah. Because this would have been a, a you know this would have been a key thing core business. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And it's important to remember. But you know what what surprises me, Leanne, is that it doesn't feel like a lot of people are actively working on this transition in the department even remember that every other time this has happened, they had the support of professional support coordinators mm. to to help explain this stuff to the sector. Yeah, we miss them every day. <laughs> yes. Um, so we will, uh, yes, we'll obviously probably each each week we'll just continue to give an update on this as it's such a big big change to the sector. We want to make sure people are as informed as possible. But uh, as always, we would recommend that people head to the Education Department website just to keep on keep on top of it. And it, that's at education.gov.au forward slash childcare, one of the few times I'm forced to say that word. Uh, in other news, so 38 early education organisations and sector peak bodies have signed a joint statement calling on the federal government to accept and implement the recommendations of the recent Lifting Our Game report. Uh, we covered that report, I think, in episode 56, if I'm correctly. We actually had an interview with uh, Professor Deb Brennan, who was one of the co-authors of that report. Uh, the statement particularly calls out the report's recommendation that Australia move to providing three-year-old preschool. Um, so I think, look, I think we, when the, the Jobs for Families legislation came forward, we were a little sceptical of the, of the joint statement that sort of supported some parts of the package and asked for 15 hours rather than 12. But this seems like a relatively good you know, joint and unified statement from the sector. I'm, I'm, I'm generally all for this. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and I, I think it'll be interesting to see if then there's kind of some, what the outcome of a joint statement like this is. Whether there's, you know, something that is um, actually there's a response to it. Has there been any sort of response from government to it? I don't think there's been a no, but it seems response. to absolutely reflect the Labor Party's um, uh, call for uh, uh, for two years of preschool education. Well, Labor are Labor actually calling for that, or are they, or are they yeah. just calling for sustainable funding for four-year-old preschool? Isn't that the campaign they're running at the moment? Oh, I thought it was for three-year-olds as well. Ooh, we're going to have a policy fight now, Lisa. It's going to be fun. We'll we'll take this to Twitter after the airways. I thought that they were. I thought I thought um I thought the Labor Party were just calling on ensuring continuous funding for four year old preschool. I don't think they'd come out and specifically called for three year old, have they yet? Um, Google's oh, we're all <laughs> hear the keyboard clacking. <laughs> Um, the, the, the other thing I'd add here... Um, that was days ago, Liam. How do you expect us to remember that I don't long know. One, one two-week break, Lisa, and it all goes out of the head, doesn't it? Um, the, the other thing I would uh, sort of uh, add here is that... Um, exactly that, that I think that this is such a huge advocacy challenge for Australia because it kind of, even though 
you know, other countries have sort of nailed this problem so long ago where we're sort of calling for three-year-old preschool and we haven't nailed four-year-old preschool in Australia. It's still on year-to-year or, you know, 18-month funding uh, at the best. So I think with a with the current Conservative government, I, I seriously doubt there's any chance this is going to be met in the next little while. Sadly. Sadly. <laughs> Sadly. Well, yeah, because we're not, we, you're right, we're not on top of um, the universal access for four-year-olds yet because there's no security in that that funding and it's it's shameful that that's it, the case. It is shameful. I was in a workshop today where I um, there was a, a, an educator who uh, moved from the UK and uh, she was a bit bewildered by our approach to funding because, of course, in the UK they have uh, preschool access for three-year-olds. They also have for t- for uh, targeted access for two-year-olds for vulnerable families. She just thought we were crazy. So people, we're looking, we're looking ridiculous compared to England. This is surely some measure of national shame. If that doesn't get some sort of advocacy towards funding in this space, I don't know what else is going I, to. I wonder whether we're at the most chronic sort of level of of insecure funding. I mean, there have been times in the past where funding has has been insecure in terms of the the period of funding, but there's always been an underlying kind of impetus for. for continuity of it but now it is it's almost like we've come to accept that that is exactly how the whole thing happens and none of you know there's just never any any security that we can say yes those four-year-olds will definitely be funded into the future regardless of of who is in government absolutely lisa have we talked enough for you to find out the answer to this question yet yeah you're right you're right yes yes (laughs) excellent I don't know quite. I'm, I'm you must have read it somewhere, though, you, because you it's it's in your head. So there, it must be written somewhere. There's probably <laughs> secret secret documents somewhere, Liam, that Lisa's had a hands on. <gasps> Lisa's probably getting secret consultation get my, sessions. <laughs> I never get my hands on anything secret. Oh, that isn't even true. I'm excited <laughs> to find out what you've got your hands on. <laughs> um. In, uh, in uh, recent news, sort of uh, similarly around that same space of uh, national movements in, in education, um, David Gonski and an independent review panel of researchers and education experts have presented their report on a second major review into Australian education. This is Gonski 2.0, we're calling it. Um, while the focus continues to be on primary and secondary schooling, the re- report does call out the need to promote high-quality Early learning. So I will say this. This appeared pretty, pretty uh, heavily in my Twitter feed uh, today. We're recording this on on Monday, quite earlier than we normally do. And I kind of, I, I, I dug out the report and printed the the first few chapters. And I've got to say, it it does reference early learning, but I think once. And there's not a hell of a lot in the actual document itself. Or am I immediately going to the pessimistic model as I normally do? Hmm. I don't know because I haven't read it. <laughs> we gave You're Leanne, ahead of me. We gave Leanne the homework of reading the the school's forecast, so it's not fair that she had to do that. But um, couldn't do that one as well. No, I think it, I think there's some general statements about the importance of uh, promoting early learning, but it sort of refers to it mostly in the context of transition to schools, which um, I don't know always kind of irritates me slightly because I think there's more to early learning than just successful transition to schools. Not only no, we need to. F- I th- I I actually think you're wrong, Liam. I think I could be. I should have quit um, when I was ahead about the labour policy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Just try to even that um, score. <laughs> he's called for um, literacy and numeracy in uh, in the early years. Oh. I think. Can you note, um, listeners, that while Lisa had to click her keyboard to look through that, I'm I'm leafing through 
paper here to actually look through the report. Yeah, I'm environmentally... Yeah. I've got the um, dead tree uh, version. Uh, Liam, you're an environmental vandal. What's going on? <laughs> it's just if I find that stuff impossible to read on a screen if it's a lengthy report. We might, I think we'll, we might talk about that a bit more next week, but um, it is there and it's available and we'll include a link um, to the Consumer Report. And I think we should say, taking off my pessimistic hat, it's always good that any time early learning can be featured in these um, these fairly big national reports. Anything David Gonski writes is... is, is, uh, is People sit up and take notice. So if he's including early childhood, that can only be a good thing. Um, and then finally this week, uh, the Department of Education has announced that those services which have been successful in applications for grants under the Community Child Care Fund have been notified. Um, for those who have uh, entirely reasonably forgotten what this is, the fund is part of the safety net under the new child care package and it provides grants to services to reduce barriers to accessing uh, early childhood education and care. So, for example, services where the, uh, the childcare subsidy won't be enough to keep them open. Uh, the minister announced uh, in a media release titled Backing Early Learning and Care for Disadvantaged Families. I think that's the first press release about early childhood he's done for a while. The hat doesn't have the word fraud in it. So congratulations to Minister <laughs> Birmingham. Um, 850 services shared in the $115 million open grants and 151 BBF services shared in the $156 million quarantined for them. Uh, no announcement has yet been made uh, as to who were the winners, uh, nor how many services well, un- unsuccessfully No applied. announcement, but um, uh, the media reports have started to come through where local MPs have announced ha- who got mm. it in their area. So, um, you yeah, know, maybe within a few days there might be a list, but at the moment it hasn't been. Yeah. So in what period is this funding for? Is it an annual Grant or is it a, how many years does it go for? I think the the because uh, there's two streams to the to the community childcare fund. So there's the the open one, which is available to all services. My understanding is that one is going to be annual. I'm having to really think back to um, the all the big discussions we had about this. Oh God, this was the beginning of 2017, so over a year ago. I'm not so sure about the closed funding for BBF services. I have a feeling wasn't that a one-off just to get the Nick Xenophon team over the line? Yes, it so, was, but it, okay. I don't think it's just a one-off. But yeah, well, can I just? I mean, my interest in this is mostly with the BBF um, services. So I just want to point out, and I, I will put up my hand to see. Well, I haven't done a lot of research into this specifically, but I think just it's just in terms of headline figures. So one hundred and fifty-one BBF services are shared. Uh, in that closed funding that was only available to BBF services. Uh, and according to Snake, in 2015, there were 337 BBF services. So that's less than half of that, that number have received it, funding. It is less than half. And I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm ready to be criticised for this, but there mm. are sometimes services that have been quite niche services that have been superseded by other others in their area, not all. So the, a certain proportion of those would be um, moving, you know, they would be, have been absorbed into another service or would have actually transitioned. Yeah. But even so, like when I look at that, that it looks like a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money. No. And again, it's this lack of security pessimistic about this it's the lack of security around that funding when we know the type of work that bbf services do the incredible work that they do and 
there, there should have always been security for those services ongoing forever yeah. funding. Yeah. This was one of my big disappointments with the advocacy well, around the... in the, the minister's eyes there is. It's called the childcare subsidy. Mm. This is one of my big yeah, yes. p- particular disappointments with the advocacy uh, by the sector around the Jobs for Families package is there just wasn't enough fighting for this funding. People just seemed to accept that it was going to go, which just I'm, I'm not sure why. Um, but there just, I never really got a sense there was a big concerted campaign to keep this funding. And and I'm all for BBF services being pulled into the national quality framework. That was never the argument for me. But I have always accepted, and I'm saying this as someone who operates services. I I am more, well, I don't operate them myself, sorry. As I, I work for an organisation that operates services. I am all for BBF services getting special individualised funding above and beyond because they do they do work in you know the most rural, regional, remote communities. They do some of the most complex work out there. They do need special support above and beyond you know what we do here in the heart of Canberra. I, I always hated this argument that there was this. They they tried to play the unfair card like it was unfair. They got individualised funding and some services got this much and some didn't. I mean that was the whole point. Some services were operating out of old shipping containers in the middle of the desert, whereas some were operating. Yeah out of reasonably good, you know, old buildings and had reasonably good support from the community. That was that argument was always really unfair and I don't know why the sector didn't stand up for except, this funding more. Except that I think I think possibly some of what they were arguing, to be fair, was that, you know, there was inconsistency between the funding that, that some BBF services got compared to other BBF services. Now yeah, you know, that could just mean that it didn't sit the uh, for the you know, the bureaucrats' kind of desire to have neatness of funding. They weren't getting a certain amount per child, but it also sometimes means that the more articulate services get higher amounts of um, funding, and those services that are doing a lot but perhaps aren't as great at submission writing are getting less money than what they might deserve. And certainly in the minister's press release, he, he kind of spoke about that quite a bit. Hmm. I think it'd be, it'd be good to go back and have another discussion about the about the BBS. And I'd love to hear from, you know, someone working in the BBF um, sector, how they're finding that that transition over to the to the new system. But um that's, I think, but Liam, it's not just the BBFs. We're also looking at the the school, the um, education care services in the um, unrestricted, or you know, the yeah, in the unrestricted the fund, yeah. pot of fun. That quite a few of those services that have been getting long term sustainability funding or community sector program funding or community support funding or sustainability assistance or whatever, I suspect that a lot of them haven't been successful. Hmm. And of the ones that of those eight hundred ones that have been successful, a lot of them had to put up new programs that they were going to run in order to get that money new ways that they were going to try to become sustainable, where in reality some of those services will never be sustainable commercially because there just isn't the populations, but that doesn't mean that they're not needed. Yeah. And I'd love to know how many people wasted the energy and effort (laughs) into making an application for that funding and didn't receive it. I was very happy that the one service that asked me to help them um, <laughs> do their submission did get funded. Oh, that's great news. Well, 
Well done. <laughs> All right. Like, that might be a pro. There's a promo there. That's, that's right. Well, that's a positive note to end the news list. I on. write good tenders, people. <laughs> tenders are us. <laughs> Not us. <laughs> Many services are available from Lisa Bryant. Get in touch with her on Twitter. So let's end. Let's be the opportunity, Liam. Like, you know, when you hear other podcasts. They're not ours, and they go, "Oh, hello, Blue Apron." <laughs> we could do an ad for your- Lisa. We could do one for Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's the end of the news list. We're going to cut to a quick ad for Lisa's editing and grant writing services, and then we'll be back <laughs> with our with with our chat about uh, RTOs and the educated workforce. So, stay with us. Bland government writing interpreted by someone who knows the English language. <laughs> Go to Lisa oh, Bryant. Can you get us out of this? Keep going. That is too good. Do you, do you need someone to engage on Facebook in the comments? You don't want to go anywhere near. Lisa is available. <laughs> Because I love those ads in all of the podcasts where they go, do you, that sort of stuff, do you need a good night's sleep and you haven't had one for two years? <laughs> well, Lisa, I think you were now owe us a fair bit of money for this ad, so I'll, I'll send you the invoice after the, after the show. <laughs> Just take it out of a pay. Take it out of a pay. <laughs> All right, we're back. So, yes, we're going to uh, talk RTOs and, and sort of the educator workforce and I guess our views on a range of issues affecting uh, educators and, and the work happening in those spaces. So uh, Skills IQ, which is an independent not-for-profit organisation dedicated to ensuring RTO packages reflect the skills needs of industry, has released an industry skills forecast for a range of sectors, including early childhood education. Uh, this forecast basically takes a look at the key factors currently affecting the Certificate three and Diploma in Children's Services, as, a, as well as a sort of few other um, complementary uh, um, qualifications, but mostly the Cert three and the Diploma, and uh, what might be around the corner that could affect them. So um, I'm going to put up my hand immediately here and say uh, RTOs in particular are just almost a complete brave new world for me. I, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about RTOs in particular and the background and things that go into it. So I'm looking forward to learn, learning a lot from this conversation. But um, Leanne, I might start with you because we sort of assign this to you as, as homework. But <laughs> so we it, can, was, it was my homework. <laughs> so that's right. So just tell us, what is this document? And I guess, how does it fit in with, um, you know, some of the other things going on in the sector? Skills IQ have produced uh, a forecast and this forecast tells us about the conditions within the sector, what's actually happening within the sector, and then um, it, it makes some recommendations around what should be included within upcoming um, qualifications within this qualifications framework of diplomas and certificates specifically, thinking about that. <clears throat> so it kind of offers us a, a broader industry report. And I think, Liam, when you sort of had a look at it, you said, well, what is it actually telling us? Because to, to you, it looked like a just a broad report on the sector. Um, and it didn't, you know, you're thinking, well, what do what do you actually need to sort of give feedback on? But I think that there are some really important things within this broad scoping of the sector, which do tell us about the changing conditions in the sector and also the impact of the new legislation and how that may lead to casualisation within within the workforce, mm. which is something that we've been really worried about with the legislative changes. 
Um, and it also considers things like career pathways for educators and um, identifies some of the really challenging issues that we will have, such as retention of qualified educators in the sector and the sorts of challenges that they face in their everyday work. Um, so it, it gives a nice kind of overview of those things and it's a contemporary overview and it, it is taken from the latest research as well. So I think that that's, it's, it's a great sort of primer actually on the conditions within the workforce now. But what it does is it identifies future skills needs and makes some recommendations around those. And the sort of skills needs that they're identifying are things like soft skills. So soft skills gets a big um, Guernsey with sorts of things like interpersonal communication, teamwork, problem solving. Also one that I know Lisa will be cheering about is technology skills because um, you've always identified that technology. Yeah, word. <laughs> technology skills are needed. You never know. Um uh, language literacy and numeracy, numeracy skills, although it does identify challenges around those skills because we've seen how that whole process in within teacher education has been undermined. Um, so they're the sorts of things that they're looking at as future skills that are needed. And then this is kind of all wrapped up into a report. It's a process that has existed forever where it makes some recommendations then it's put out to consultation, but it also works with a uh, what's called a Children's Education and Care Industry Reference Committee, which is made up of employers, RTOs, government, PEAKs, um, ASEQA and the unions as well. So they provide feedback on this and sign off on the recommendations that are made. So that's sort of broadly what it is. In terms of what feedback people could offer, now I know ECA is asking for feedback by the 7th, of May, but it isn't actually clear any other kind of avenues for providing feedback on this. And as you yeah, say, it is a broad and meeting. Well, if you go back to the online form, that's the that's the ECA one, yeah. Is, are no, you talking no, about that or not, it's not ECA? It's to the to this mob, the mob you've been talking. Oh, about it is too. Like yeah, it. yeah. But in another spot, it says that this is actually closed. <laughs> no, 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 that's, yeah, no, this thing's still open. Their website okay. is very annoying, etc. <laughs> um, can can I give a, a bit of a response? I, unlike you, Leanne, I kind of think, oh, God, why would you bother to respond to this stuff? This is what I call, you know, the business of the vocational care sector. It's all like lots and lots of words and lots and lots of justifying of people's jobs, etc. But what the, my understanding, having read a little bit through the report, but re reading wider, is that these things, this particular report started out as um, the work plan for skills IQ. So they've got, you know, 17 different qualifications including the community sectors qualification under it and so to decide which package they'd look at first they did each of these these kind of um uh skills forecasts and then the federal government read them all and went oh okay this one looks like the one that's got serious problems i reckon you do this one first and given that they are doing a current review of our 
our qualifications or maybe they've finished the consultation pay, uh, part but they're still do, still reviewing our qualifications, I would think that that would be the more important thing for our sector to feed into. But tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> well, I, what, what would you be wrong about, though? Well, that this is maybe something that, you know, we don't really have to bother responding to and we can keep our responses to to actually look at what changes need to be done to the packages. So are you saying to respond to what needs to be changed? I'm a bit confused, sorry. Um, I'm saying that this is kind of more or less just a, a large, like a, like you, I can't see how you'd respond to this. It's just telling you what the what's happening in the sector and, you know, how many things there are. I don't know how you can respond to a set of facts other than say, yes, this seems fairly accurate. Yeah, yeah. You can say, hey, I'm really, really shocked at the fact that um, – uh, in the last three years, we've had 140,000 people enrol in the Cert 3 and only 35,000 graduate. Yeah, that was incredible. Or we've got 177,000 enrolled in the diploma and only 25,000 graduate, graduate, graduate. But other than that, I can't really see how you can respond to it much. I, I get that it's, you know... It's important that these people exist and do this stuff, but I think that it's more important that when we look at the actual um, uh, qualifications, know, the, the actual qualifications yeah. and what they need changed about them or how they're run and why, you know, looking at, in fact, why so many people are starting um diplomas and cert threes and aren't continuing. Yeah, and I think that it is that that what you're saying is the broader themes that it is worth responding to. I agree that, you know, once the package is revised and those things, it is really important to then get involved in what what each qualification has within it. But the broader themes around those sorts of things that you're talking about and even putting forward questions about, you know, we've got some we've got a problem with retention. Um, within the sector, and yet we can't even get people through a full qualification. So what? how can we then, you know, fulfil the future needs of the workforce if we're not even meeting those targets around people starting a qualification and finishing it? And from employers' perspective, um, what, is it, what is it more broadly about people who are uh, fresh, you know, freshly graduated from these courses what what is their capacity once they're actually in a service and and delivering on that on that qualification? So I, I think that there's some of those broader themes. It's it's a little bit nebulous around what you would actually respond to, but I still think it's worth giving some perspective on this and maybe endorsing some of those themes that they're talking about um, within this, which is around the the needs, the future needs. You know, is there really actually soft skills that are needed? Do we need to do we need to have technology? skills, those sorts of things. So I, I guess there and is And these technology skills are soft skills. Uh, no, it's not. It's listed separately. The only thing that 
with the technology skills that they're identifying there is the um, Liam's favourite thing, which is the apps to do with, um, you know, uh, recording children's development and planning and programming, those sorts of things. But, uh, you know, even that's worth commenting on, I think, because that these are pedagogical issues and if that becomes a, a sort of a competency, well, by putting a competency in there around technology relating to apps, are we actually changing the face of pedagogy within the sector? Well, maybe a way to approach sort of feedback to this might be, are there things we think are missing from the big broad themes? Probably one I would call out, because I think you're right, they, they have a big focus on those soft skills. Um, there's some interesting stuff in there around child protection, sort of responding to mm-hmm. the Royal Commission, I think. One thing that's really seems to be missing for me, and I'm surprised you haven't brought this up, Leanne, is leadership. That isn't One of the things I've often seen in, particularly if you look at the diploma qualification, is there's... I think there's a lack of support for educators um, to, in terms of how to enact leadership, because we sort of, if you're, if you've got a diploma, you're more than likely to be put into a team leader role. But I don't think you're necessarily given those sort of practical skills, you know, that are actually around mentoring and 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 you know, and possibly even performance managing, you know, uh, people in your team. I'm, I, I, I would have thought that um, leadership might have been something we could include as feedback, or something that needs to be considered. That's true, but it is actually in there. The, the leadership element is in oh. there. And even when you're looking at some of those soft skills, there's the sorts of things that are around leadership, such as problem-solving, emotional judgment, ethics, that I kind of put into the leadership basket um, where people are sort of exercising leading behaviours. And, and if they're, you know, if they're, ex- if they're enacting those things within their work, then that is leadership. I might just say performance management might be in the management basket. Might be. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> – probably, not using that probably. I shouldn't have said performance <laughs> management. I think supporting, you know, uh, helping, you know, the, the, the educators in your room to succeed. So not sort of, you know, managing poor performance so much as yeah. um, ensuring that, you know, educators are actually performing well in terms of their engagement and interactions with children. Yeah, and I think to a degree – that that um that is in there in the skills but and and leadership is mentioned but yeah I agree it could be a, a larger component of what's what's important there because it does need to have a presence yeah so I think one of the reasons we really wanted to discuss this um even though I guess we've got some questions about the structure of the document and where it fits is that uh, it's part of a broader context of workforce planning and workforce sector development and I guess has to be viewed in the context of the fact we don't have a workforce uh, we don't have a national workforce strategy at the moment so um, and I think that's actually something that's skipped a bit in this report you know um the two things that that you know if i had to respond to it that i would say is that they quote the fact they quote lifting our game report saying that it made the recommendation that australian governments should agree to a new national early childhood education and care workforce strategy to support the recruitment retention sustainability and enhanced professionalization of the workforce and it really doesn't point out that you know we don't have a one and yet it 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 um it talks about I'm sorry I'm just trying to find the figure the number of workers in the education and care sector is projected to grow by around 20% between 2017 and 2022 
Now, if we can't get those people through the qualifications they need because they keep dropping out, then how is the workforce going to match that growth in demand and why isn't this you know, so-called premier report um, about the workforce saying, you know, a workforce plan is absolutely necessary? And we haven't had a workforce plan for a very, very long time. And some of those workforce plans that we had in the past were a bit lame as well. Yeah, workforce brochures, yeah. I used to call them. I, someone did a New South Wales government or someone contracted oh. by the New South Wales government did a literature review of workforce stuff because mm. the New South Wales government is apparently thinking about doing a workforce plan. And they went through state by state what's happening. They said the Australian government had um, the workforce strategy for Australia for 2012 to 2016. Victoria had one in 2009. Queensland currently does have a workforce action plan. Um, and its goals is that the workforce be valued, that qualifications be improved and that people's skills be updated. South Australia doesn't have one. Northern Territory doesn't have one. Western Australia um, said that they'd like to have one. Um, and New South Wales government is thinking about one. Have I left anyone off there? Oh, Tasmania had one that expired in 2016. Canberra had one that expired in 2014. So... Ah, oh, oh, ACT. Yeah, so... Well, as not, as, doing yeah, good not as bad as the others, though. I think, um, and I don't know whether it's worth thinking here about, and you two would have a far better knowledge of the history of this, but, um, you know, what is, if we look at the early childhood sector, you know, um, yeah, historically, well, we know what is the history of workforce planning for the sector. I mean, you've listed there a whole bunch of either strategies that are no longer in place or are sort of maybe being considered, but, um, you know, is there examples of this being successfully sort of done in the past? Well, we did, we did have a whole productivity inquiry, which I know you get very tired of me talking about the workforce one, um, which was in 2011, produced in 2011, which actually laid out a really quite remarkable plan for workforce. And there have been workforce plans in the past, which is, you know, where a lot of this, you know, where, where a lot of our kind of planning around um, competency-based training sprung from. So there has been, but it's it's been quite some time since we've had really good, proper workforce planning around a contemporary workforce and thinking about, um, you know, career pathways for, for um, educators. And a lot of it probably stems from the issue around remuneration because yeah, why you can't get away from workforce that. Plan for, well, yeah, that's right. A workforce plan which is doomed to fail because people are going to receive wages, proper wages for that that actual sort of work that they do. Yeah, because that was going to be my and question: is why why is why is no one taking up this baton? This seems so important. We know that the only thing that's going to give positive outcomes for children are the educators working with them. So why are governments just sort of refusing to engage on this issue? And I guess... They don't because they don't want to supply the funding for a higher wage and anything, any higher wages that that 
have to be paid have to come from employers who have to um, extract that money from the client. And because they see us as an industry, they don't see us like the you know school education sector and that therefore they're responsible for the workforce development. They see us as, you know, your your own independent industry, so get your own workforce stuff together. One of the um this week um someone uh, John Terry from Good Start tweeted that since 2010, the number of early childhood teachers in Australia trebled from 18,000 to 47,000, but we need another 36,000 by 2022, or around 7,000 a year. He got these figures from another report called joboutlook.gov.au, where you go in and have a look at occupation. Of course, there's a childcare section, but there's also a, an early education section that covers early childhood teachers. And John made the point that our unis are only producing 2,000 to 3,000 early childhood graduates per annum. So where are those other four to 5,000 graduates? Yeah, and then the number of those that actually stay in the sector, there, there's an attrition, you know, before they even step foot into the sector. Yeah. It's scary, isn't it? So we're, we're, not, we're not really planning properly for the demand and taking into account the attrition, but we're not even having the number of people being trained. This should be a growth industry. <laughs> <laughs> so if we thought about, obviously, um, if we were able to somehow convince politicians, um, I think we would all agree that this has to be national. So we can have different state and territories, you know, things going on, but this has to be led nationally. This has to be something that's being led by the government. If there was, you know, a push to develop a new workforce strategy or a new workforce uh, action plan, we should point out here, uh, this is, you know, based on my memories of the last election, but the federal government had no plans whatsoever to introduce an early childhood workforce strategy. The Labor Party and the Greens, I think, both did commit in the last election to developing a workforce strategy of some kind. Um, so I guess, you know, from, from all three of us, what, what are the things we'd like to see uh, in that strategy? Um, Lisa, do you want, what, what would you make sure was in there? Look, I, you know, I, I think retention is one of the high things, you know, especially retention at the higher end of the um, workforce, at, at our teachers and our managers, etc. I think that's really important. I think wages is, you know, clearly really important and that's a part of the retention. But I also think that, you know, um, oh, look, I'm just going to call it. If, if we don't do something about the wages to the sector, then the people with the skills that we need to stay in the sector and to do well in the sector won't be attracted to the sector. We'll just be attracting idiots to come into the sector. I look forward to how they're going to word that in a workforce strategy, Lisa. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, but it's true, isn't it? Like we never actually call that out. But, you know, unless unless wages go up, then great people aren't going to be attracted to the sector. Yeah, well, I mean, it, yeah. it, it does come down to that, yeah. Yeah. All right, Leanne, I, what, what, what would you want to make sure is in there? Well, I, so it's a tough act yeah, to follow. I, mean, but, I, I don't, yeah, it is. I, I do want to say that, I, it, yes, I agree that, that 
um, wages are, I think just to say that it doesn't mean that there are quality people in the sector now because the wages are low. So I just want to say that up front because I don't think that's, you're not saying that, Lisa, but it could, it could sound like that. No, um, no, no. I just meant, you know, as the disparity grows, yeah. then, you know, we're going to see less good people like the good people that are currently in the sector coming. Yeah. People Definitely. you self-select out. Sorry. So I, I, yeah, so, I mean, my, my would be on the same kind of pathway is about the quality. We need to, to put, um, you know, a big strategy around the quality of educators, um, not just in the, the training of um, educators and teachers, but also in the postgraduate training because, you know, that's, a, that's an area that has really fallen down um, in the last few years where we haven't had a structure around postgraduate training, um, which is absolutely essential. And we have got some little areas of quality that were, that are being worked on, such as teacher accreditation and, you know, some of those areas, but, but it needs to be a much more holistic approach to the quality of um, the educator sort of pre the pre-training, you know, the training period and then the post-training as well. And we need particular strategies for a rural and remote workforce as well because we we cannot apply those areas, even if there's enough in the in the um, city areas, it's really difficult. And we need the same sorts of incentives within those areas that are in the education system. I remember once presenting at a, um, that, that was like a careers, you know, job market at Macquarie Uni. And we had to speak after the, um, after the school sector had to speak. And they were talking about all of the incredible incentives that were available for rural and remote uh, teachers, you know, teachers who went to rural and remote areas. There were things like relocation money and, you know, subsidised rent and all of this sort of stuff. And the only thing we had to offer was you're going to love working in those rural areas. It's just it's that's not enough in terms of being to get people to move to those areas to become childhood educators or to work as, as teachers in those areas. So I guess I'd just say those two things, quality, um, in addition to the wages, of course, quality and um, and strategies that, that look to supplying rural and remote areas. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I probably don't have too much more to add. I think I, I will, you know, add my voice to wages. And I think we, I do, I do think something shifted in the debate where I think we now, even if the government is going to refuse to act on it, I think we are now at the point where no one can justifiably develop a workforce strategy that doesn't include wages. This myth and this, you know, this lie that these problems can be solved without addressing wages at a government level. I think, you know, that that's been, that's been called out and identified and, um, you know, Labor have said some positive things. I, I'm, I'm never happy until I see a policy in front of me and it's costed and they take it to an election. But I would. it seems likely that they'll move in this on some way and hopefully better than their, uh, the, the early years quality front fund they put together. Um, my other suggestion is one I really hate to make because I know it probably won't work, but I don't, I don't know how else it's going to work at the moment, which is, you know, some sort of national campaign about professional identity for educators, trying to shift the conversation in the community around 
the, the work that educators do. So really trying to get away from that, that idea of childcare workers and switching it to early childhood educators. I do think this was a real missing piece of the NQF when Labor put it in and they got so much of that I'll right. just ask the genie that I've got in my bottle to do that yeah. one, Liam. Yeah. <laughs> Look, and, and, and I've, got to, I've got to say this is actually my least favourite way of doing things because I actually don't think they ever really work, but I don't know what the other option is because this, and this makes me sad, but this isn't going to come from the sector. The sector itself is not convinced of this yet. There are still educators who call themselves childcare workers. There are still educators who don't see the that don't see the huge value of what they do. Um, this probably does need to come from an outside source. And look, maybe it could be um, you know funded by sector peak bodies or something. But I, you know, I'd like this would at least kickstart the conversation and maybe lead to something down the road where we can begin to shift community perception around the work educators do um the other thing is that this is and this is obviously way down the track and this may be a bit of a controversial one but i wanted to put this out there as something i've been thinking for a while is we obviously have you know teacher registration initiatives i see no reason why we should not have educator registration initiatives we know how important the first five years are we know how critically important the work that educators do if we're going to take that seriously let's mean what we say and look at actually having you know educators have to go through sort of quality assessment regularly so i got my diploma 10 years ago now i got my i qualified by early childhood degree uh four years ago if i decide you know in three or four years to go back and teach in a center how much have we learned about children's learning and development in that time i should have to be able to evidence that i can actually still have current knowledge and go back um, into teaching and i actually don't see a particular reason why we couldn't you know way 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 down the track when we've solved a whole range of other problems but why don't we dream big and think actually this role is so important that we want to make sure that anyone who works with young children in the first five years has the most up-to-date knowledge about early childhood development and learning and working with young children and and maybe i think that's a great idea and and it could happen side by side with the other things i mean i know you're saying to sort of resolve it after those other things are done but this is this is something that happens in so many professions you know accountants uh nurses lawyers whatever cannot keep their registration or or cannot you know perf- perform their work within their sector unless they do have that um consistent professional development that they are meeting those um those standards however we don't want it to be a um you know tick and flick of uh, online courses people have to do (laughs) to ensure their registration because we want that quality but yeah I, i absolutely agree yeah that'd be a bit of a holy grail for me to reach you for the next little while can I just point out, Liam, that there's another survey as well that people should do, and perhaps we could put a link to it on the podcast website. Um, it's the Aitzel National Review of Teacher Registration. Um, the survey finishes on the 7th of May, and it's only a five to ten minute survey, but Aitzel are reviewing the whole concept of teacher registration, and it's important that early childhood teachers have a bit of a say on that. So if you could just go in and have a look at that. It's quite an easy survey, isn't it, Leanne? You've done it, haven't you? I haven't done that one. That's a reminder. Thank you. Liam, <laughs> you're a teacher, aren't right? you? I, I, I didn't even know that was happening, so we've all got some homework there to do. All right. Well, thanks for that, Lisa. But um, we'll be back after a quick break with our recommendations for the week. All 
right, welcome back. So, uh, Leanne, first recommendation back after a couple of weeks off. What are you recommending people check out? So, um, I'm recommending this this Ross Gittins article because whilst it's in relation to uh, the the banking inquiry, I think it's something that I'm sort of seeing more and more in services and organisations is KPIs linked to um, early childhood directors' work, and that really worries me when I'm seeing things like bonuses for high utilisation. Um, like everybody wants high utilisation, but how do you actually achieve that in a in a very competitive market? Um, you know, what, what are people actually doing to achieve that utilisation? Is that that is that at the cost of quality? Um, same again with budgets. So it's it's just something if you read this article and you lay it over early childhood and think about the challenges that KPIs um, present, I think Ross Gittins has summarised that pretty beautifully, even for early childhood education. Oh, yay. Anything that attacks KPIs, I'm on board with. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yes. All right, Lisa, what are you going to bring for us? Look, mine's just a, an article from the Herald that talks about the number of people who were doing um, uh, vet qualifications through shonky RTOs and how much debts they have, um, uh, you know, that they in enrolling with those shonky RTOs. And I think it's just important, the reason I've put it there is in context of all those people that enrolled in a Cert 3 or a diploma and have never finished, um, you know, the article says that the, the real danger, apart from all these individuals having debts that, you know, they um, uh, that they can't repay, is that it might turn a lot of people off studying for life because they've, you know, incurred these debts and had bad study experiences. Yes, and and that was actually something that we didn't talk about in the in the main game, which is about RTOs. We won't go there now, but that's the sort of bad practice that happens in RTOs that may that that you know will work against the workforce yeah that, yeah that that idea that people are just being put off from future learning as well they're paying twice so they've got the, they've got the debt and then they're you know losing future opportunities as well that's yeah. really sad um, my recommendation I couldn't find a way to tie it to the topic at all but I just wanted to recommend that I finished reading it uh, over the weekend is um, the new quarterly essay uh, Moment of Truth History in Australia's Future and it has a, a look at sort of where the reconciliation process uh, is up to in Australia particularly particular looks at the recent um, Uluru statement from the heart and it was a really tough read at the, and it, it talks about um, the great Australian silence in Australia our refusal to just acknowledge the the, the true um, the true history of what happened to indigenous people after after um, colonization it's um, I don't want to get get too too uh, too into it but it was tough again to just read how quickly that incredible um, statement from the heart if you haven't read it you know it's not that long um, you can you can print it out and have it in your office but um that you know that the, the dismissive response to indigenous people and the and particularly the, the the need for what's called a truth and reconciliation commission these things have happened in other countries where um, people are allowed to tell their stories and just be heard and it, and it, what sort of stood out for me from this this uh, this long essay was that you know separate to structural reform and change that we need which includes constitutional recognition and includes a treaty and includes compensation is that indigenous people just want their stories to be heard and we can't even do that in australia so i found it a really confronting read and really um encouraged me to 
redouble my efforts in in thinking about and trying to engage in that space. And I'd really recommend you know, anyone, educators, anyone working, um, you know, anyone who you know is an Australian reads this. It was a it was a great essay. I'm also interested in reading Liam Anita Heese's. Growing up Aboriginal. Yeah, Growing Up Aboriginal. Yeah. That looks like a really good book. She edited it. And I just think it, you know, to get different perspectives about what it's like to grow up as an Aboriginal person now in Australia is really important for educators to know. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's it for another week. We're glad you uh, you stuck with us and joined us back after a two-week break we will be back next week with another new episode but until then it's goodbye from me and from me and from me you have been listening to the early education show hosted by lisa bryant leanne gibbs and leah mcnicholas and produced by leah mcnicholas find us online at earlyeducationshow.com and while you're there it would be great if you could hit the support the show tab where you can become a patron of the show and support us for as little as $1 a month. We really appreciate it. Get in touch with us at earlyedushow at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter with the username earlyedushow. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. This really helps other people find the show. See you next time.